O God, in the stillness, come meet us. Amen. So I remember when I was a kid, especially, my mom would tell me stories about the night of my birth. And I never grew tired about hearing about the cold and icy night when they finally went to the hospital. And I was born in the middle of the night, and as a child, it seemed so exotic to claim my entry into the world at 1.57 a.m., right? That was an hour I had never seen in my young years. But I also remember when a family in my home church adopted their first child. And they had talked about it for a long time. They didn't know when it would happen. And I was so excited when we drove by one day and there were balloons in their yard, which meant the baby had come home. And then I was even more excited when my mom suggested we should go by and bring a gift and maybe hold that precious life. You know, there's something so special about beginnings. Beginnings of life, beginnings of relationships. And it may seem a little bit strange to say, but organizations and institutions and yes, even churches have birthdays. I've already shared that our birthday here at Chum is May 17, 1908. That was our charter date. We chartered under the name of College Hill Methodist Episcopal Church, and we have evolved over the 111 years of our existence. We've even changed our name at least once, right, with the merger of uh, in 1968. So I want to invite us today to go back in time to those early days, to relive our birthday, to remember some of our history. And then after worship, I do want to encourage you to go into the parlor and take a look at the artifacts and the memorabilia from the closets of Chum. So first I want to say a word about the Methodist Episcopal Church. The Methodist Episcopal Church was founded with the Baltimore Christmas Conference of 1784. All right, this is the beginning of the Methodist Church, the Methodist movement in the New World, as they called it, in the colonies, in the states, right? From the beginning, there was a commitment in the Methodist Episcopal Church to racial inclusion and a strong anti-slavery stand, and this came from the ministry of John Wesley. So because of this stand, early on, the members of the, the church grew, and and many of those members were black. However, as the tension over slavery within the culture at large grew, and as the tension over slavery within our denomination grew, it came to a breaking point in 1844. A slave-owning bishop from the South was instructed to free his slaves or to leave his office as bishop. He did not free them. And the following year, in 1845, the Methodist Episcopal Church South broke off from the Methodist Episcopal Church. They formed in Louisville, Kentucky with a pro-slavery stance. Now, according to our Methodist archives in Kansas, when the split happened, there were some churches in Kansas that affiliated with the Methodist Episcopal Church South. But there weren't very many and they didn't last too long. Because, as I learned this week, and you native Kansas might have already known, when Kansas became a state in 1861, we did not allow slavery. And so those Methodist Episcopal South churches died off. And so this is the context into which Chum was birthed 
1908 as a Methodist Episcopal Church. There's a beautiful written sketch of the early history of College Hill um, that is written by the first pastor, William T. Ward. And I want to read some excer excerpts today uh, in his own words. So he writes, Wichita College Hill, W.T. Ward. Red Bishop Henry W. Warren in making the appointments of the Southwest Kansas Conference at Winfield on April 6, 1908, and in so doing gave me the honor of becoming the first pastor of the College Hill Methodist Episcopal Church. Now listen carefully to this next part. A few days later, a few days later, wife and I got off the streetcar on College Hill and looked about. There were beautiful homes, some large, but for the most part, they were small, all having the appearance of comfort. All right, so back to, back to me, right? The first thing that I want to say, having just returned from annual conference, is thank God pastors no, no longer find out they are moving at the session of annual conference. I knew before I went there that I would be returning to College Hill for another year, and I am so excited and grateful for that. days in this era, this was common. And so during annual conference, there would be a very important reading of the appointments in which everyone was listening carefully, and the next few days would involve packing up and moving to the new church. And so this, this is exactly what Reverend Ward and his wife did. I looked it up. April 6th in 1908 was a Monday. That was when they found out where they were going. Says a few days later they arrived, and I would venture to guess that his first Sunday in the pulpit was probably Sunday, April 12th. So, uh, upon their arrival, Pastor Ward goes on to write, and I want you to try to imagine what he's describing. He's describing the neighborhood and the land that we are on and in right now. So this is what he says. The community was not solidly built. Houses in some places were scattering. In fact, there were whole blocks without a house or a tree. And these open places were given over to corn, cane, potatoes, and sometimes weeds. East of Roosevelt was open farmland. There was not a single foot of pavement east of Hydraulic Avenue. And our memories are fresh, with the laborious going on the part of horses to traverse the gumbo stretch from Hydraulic to the hill during rainy times. There was not a sewer system on the hill. Wichita East High School grounds were an alfalfa field, and Chisholm Creek was a creek, not a canal. Upon the day of our arrival to take up our work, we had no church building, no parsonage, and no church membership. But we did have a glorious opportunity. And this opportunity was made all the more glorious because of the splendid work done by a group of devout men and women in the months preceding our arrival. So Reverend Ward goes on to describe that glorious work that was done before he and his wife arrived. He said the land was procured prior to his arrival through the foresight of First Church downtown and with the help of citizens who lived in College Hill. And so the first UMC trustees owned the land at the corner of First and Erie. That's still our land. And then on April 28, 1908, just a few weeks before Reverend Ward arrived, the deed was given to trustees from College Hill Methodist Episcopal 
church by the trustees at First Church. So he talks about the people who were gathered in the previous eight or nine months before his arrival, and he starts with describing the first public meeting that happened on August 9th in 1907, where Reverend A.E. Hoyt was to secure names of people who might be willing to be members. By December 7th of 1907, they rented a house to hold services in, and this is it, if you can see that. They organized a Sunday school for children. By the following week, they already had 58 children. I know. <laughs> On that same Sunday, they had their first preaching service, and Reverend N.E. Harmon preached. They organized a ladies' society, a junior league. They offered communion for the first time on March 22nd. And then, on April 12th, Reverend Ward arrived. He preached his first sermon from 1 Corinthians 3.9 with 125 people present. Now, this is the first verse of the passage of scripture that Cindy read for us today. And I want to bring out just a few points from this scripture. There is a very clear message in this scripture that the people are the church, that they are what is being built, and that the leader, in fact, is not the most important piece. And apparently at this time there was division within the Corinthian church. Some of the people were quite partial to Paul's leadership. Others of them preferred Apollos, another leader who had contributed to their community. And in verse 4, before what we started reading, Paul writes, When one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? I love this. I think what he's saying is, you really can't claim to belong to a particular leader because all of you are actually human, and therefore, all of you belong to God. So it's a reminder that the leaders and the pastors will come and go, but the church remains because the people of the church remain. And the people of the church remain because they belong to God, not to a particular leader. So there's this explanation that the leaders co-labor to build the church, that Paul has set the foundation in Jesus Christ, and it is conveyed that each person is part of the structure. That literally you, you are one of the building blocks that God is using to build the church. The building of the church then, which is you, which is us, is indwelt by God. So in the case of our own history, the foundation, right, has been laid through this partnership with First Church and lay leaders from pastors lending their time, and then Reverend Ward arriving to begin the work. It was just a month after his arrival that the church was ready to charter with members. And so I want to read again in his words. He, he writes, Naturally, the matter of membership was our first concern. Accordingly, we set about the work of enlisting those who would unite with us. May 17, 1908 was designated Charter Day and was appropriately observed. The charter roll was kept open for some days, and the 78 reported on charter day was increased to 107 when the roll was finally closed. So I just want to say that as I read this, my first reaction is, if only growing the church was as easy as finding people who would sign their names to the membership roll. Those days have come and gone, my friends. But it is said that every church has a life cycle. 
and that it's normal that churches are born and churches die. At annual conference this year, we closed nine churches. And for me, this hits so close to home as I have pastored a church that made the difficult decision to close. It is hard, and it is sad, and it can also be faithful. Churches are born, and churches die. So there's a, a bell curve that shows kind of the, the life cycle of a church. Churches are planted, they go through stages of growth, they eventually reach maturity, and then they find themselves on the downward side of the bell curve. If we look around, we can see this decline happening in all the mainline denominations across the U.S. We're not the only church that can think back to the days when to the days when the pews were full every week, or the days when we had to pull in extra chairs into the fellowship hall, to the days when Sunday school classes numbered over 100 in attendance, to the days when membership numbers really did translate into the strength and power of the congregation. And there is a strange and interesting part of the scripture in 1 Corinthians that catches my attention. It's the part about fire. You know, that scripture is saying that, that the building will be built upon the foundation and all kinds of materials may be used, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. And then it says the fire will test what kind of work has been done. I think fire is such an interesting choice because, as you all well know, fire both purifies materials and makes them stronger, but it also destroys. It's a similar dichotomy with water, right? Water brings growth and new life, and we need water until the rains just won't stop and there's floods all around, destroying the land and the building and the homes of people in the community. The fire is also a sign of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we see fire on birthday cakes, right? When we light the candles. And this year, our cake is lit up with 111 candles. So I want to go back to Reverend Ward's story. They're working on the membership as a foremost priority. He is also working on the physical structure. They have the, the deed to the land, and so they start raising the funds, and eventually they started building and by Sunday, December 9th of the same year that they chartered, in 1908, they dedicated the building, the original Red Brick Church, with 400 people present. And the preacher during the service cast the vision that they still needed to raise $5,600, which at that time would have been quite a bit of money, to finish paying for the building. By the close of the service, $6,828 had been pledged. The original members of CHOM had a dream to build a church, and they were committed to making it happen. And if the fire will test what sort of work has been done, then we only need to look around at each other's faces to see the evidence. And so I want to invite you just for a moment, really do that. Look around, look at the people sitting next to you, turn around, look at the people sitting behind you. Because, my friends, it is not 
It is not the original red brick church or even the current structure. The church is us. My friends, you are the building. You are ultimately the building, and you have stood the test of time. We have stood the test of time. We are not crumbling. The flames have made us stronger and purified our purpose and our unique calling here at Chum. And this birthday gives us an opportunity to reflect on our birth, on who we are, but also on who we are becoming. Because, you see, the way that a church remains vital on that life cycle chart is to start a new life cycle, whether that's before you get to the other side of the bell curve, or even if you're over on the other side, that line that goes up and starts anew. To dream a new dream, to be infused with new energy. And so as those 111 flames burn, I wonder if we are being invited to imagine a new future. Are we being invited to greater generosity to fuel the work? Are we being invited to new expressions of church that build on our foundation? So I want to end this morning with the conclusion of Reverend Ward's writing. These are the last words in his sketch of the early history of College Hill Methodist Episcopal Church. This is what he says. Thus were the foundations laid for what we believed and often remarked to one another would someday be a great church. Our members were few. And our dollars were not multitudinous, but love and devotion were present in great profusion. There could not have been more were we rich and many. It was a joyous task to see this enterprise like a beautiful flower unfold day. My friends, I would submit to you that these words are still ever so true. Our members may be few. The, 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 the dollars may not be multitudinous. I love that word. Not one we hear very often these days, right? And yet, love and devotion are present in great and so, my friends, happy birthday. Happy birthday, Sean. We come now to this table of grace where God's love is poured out openly and freely for all. Where we come to partake, to be filled and sent forth. And so I invite you to pray. Oh God, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon these gifts of bread and fruit of the vine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ, so that as we partake of this meal, we might be transformed. That we might become the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. 
Oh God, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon these ones gathered here, your church, the people of God, that they might walk in the way that leads to life eternal, that they might do the work of building the kingdom of God in this place, in this time, in this generation. Oh God, we thank you for your spirit among us and for the ways that you live within us and work within that this meal might transform us, that we would be one, one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes again and we feast together at the heavenly banquet.